Speech by William Gladstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Speech given to the House of Commons on 7 June 1886. This speech is abridged. I wish now to refer to another matter. I hear constantly use the terms Unionists and Separatists. But what I want to know is, who are the Unionists? I want to know who are the Separatists. I see this bill described in newspapers of great circulation, and elsewhere, as a separation bill. Several gentlemen opposite adopt and make that style of description their own. Speaking of that description, I say that it is the merest slang of vulgar controversy. Do you think this bill will tend to separation? Well, your arguments, and even your prejudices, are worthy of all consideration and respect. But is it a fair and rational mode of conducting a controversy to attach these hard names to measures on which you wish to argue, and on which, I suppose, you desire to convince by argument? Let me illustrate. I go back to the Reform Act of Lord Grey. When that Reform Bill was introduced, it was conscientiously and honestly believed by great masses of men, and intelligent men, too, that the bill absolutely involved the destruction of the monarchy. The Duke of Wellington propounded a doctrine very much to this effect, but I do not think that any of those gentlemen, nor the newspapers that supported them, ever descended so low in their choice of weapons as to call the measure the monarchy destruction bill. Such language is a mere begging of the question. Now I must make a large demand on your patience and your indulgence. We conscientiously believe that there are unionists and disunionists, but that it is our policy that leads to union and yours to separation. This involves a very large and deep historical question. Let us try, for a few moments, to look at it historically. The arguments used on the other side of the house appear to me to rest in principle, and in the main, upon one of two suppositions. One of them, which I will not now discuss, is the profound incompetency of the Irish people. But there is another, and it is this. It is, I believe, the conscientious conviction of honourable gentlemen opposite, that when two or more countries, associated but not incorporated together, are in disturbed relations with each other, the remedy is to create an absolute legislative incorporation. On the other hand, they believe that the dissolution of such an incorporation is clearly the mode to bring about the dissolution of the political relations of those countries. I do not deny that there may be cases in which legislative incorporation may have been the means of constituting a great country, as in the case of France. But we believe, as proved by history, that where there are those disturbed relations between countries associated, but not incorporated, the true principle is to make ample provision for local independence, subject to imperial unity. These are propositions of the greatest interest and importance. Gentlemen speak of tightening the ties between England and Ireland, as if tightening the tie were always the means to be adopted. Tightening the tie is frequently the means of making it burst, whilst relaxing the tie is very frequently the way to provide for its durability, and to enable it to stand a stronger strain. So that it is true, as was said by the Honourable Member for Newcastle, that the separation of legislatures is often the union of countries, and the union of legislatures is often the severance of countries. Can you give me a single instance, from all your historical inquiries, where the acknowledgment of local independence has been followed by the severance of countries? I was just going to refer to those countries, and to make this admission, 
that what I have said does not apply where a third power has intervened, and has given liberty in defiance of the sovereign power to the subject state. But do you purpose to wait until some third power shall intervene in the case of Ireland, as it intervened in the case of America? I never asked the honourable gentleman whether he was afraid. It does not matter much whether he is afraid or not, but I would inculcate in him that early and provident fear which, in the language of Mr. Burke, is the mother of safety. I admit that where some third power interferes, as France interfered in the case of America, you can expect nothing to result but severance with hostile feeling on both sides. But I am not speaking of such cases. That is not the case before us but I ask you to give me a single instance where, apart from the intervention of a third power, the independence of the legislatures was followed by the severance of nations. I can give you several instances where total severance of countries has been the consequence of an attempt to tighten the bond, in the case of England and America, in the case of Belgium and Holland. The attempt to make Belgians conform to the ways and ideas and institutions of Holland led to the severance of the two countries. I can understand, then, the disinclination which honourable gentlemen opposite have to go into history as to these cases, but it will be unfolded more and more as these dates proceed, if the controversy be prolonged. It will more and more appear how strong is the foundation upon which we stand now, and upon which Mr. Grattan stood over eighty-six years ago, when he contended that a union of the legislatures was the way to a moral and a real separation between the two countries. It has been asked in this debate, why have we put aside all the other business of Parliament, and why have we thrown the question into all this agitation for the sake of the Irish question? Hear, hear! That cheer is the echo that I wanted. Well, sir, the first reason is this, because in Ireland the primary purposes of government are not attained. What said the honourable member for Newcastle in his eloquent speech? That in a considerable part of Ireland distress was chronic, disaffection was perpetual, and insurrection was smouldering. What is implied by those who speak of the dreadful murder that lately took place in Kerry? And I must quote the Belfast outrage, along with it, not as being precisely of the same character, but as a significant proof of the weakness of the tie which binds the people to the law. Sir, it is that you have not got that respect for the law, that sympathy with the law on the part of the people, without which real civilization cannot exist. That is our first reason. I will not go back at this time on the dreadful story of the Union, but that, too, must be unfolded in all its hideous features if this controversy is to be prolonged. That Union, of which I ought to say, without qualifying in the least any epithet I have used, I do not believe that that Union can or ought to be repealed, for it has made marks upon history that cannot be effaced. But I go on to another pious belief, which prevails on the other side of the house, or which is often professed in controversies on the Irish question. It is supposed that all the abuses of English power in Ireland relate to a remote period of history, and that from the year 1800 onwards, from the time of the Union, there has been a period of steady redress of grievances. Sir, I am sorry to say that there has been nothing of the kind. There has been a period when grievances have been redressed under compulsion, as in 1829, when Catholic emancipation was granted to avoid civil war. 
there have been grievances mixed up with the most terrible evidence of the general failure of government, as was exhibited by the Devon Commission in the year 1843. On a former night I made a quotation from the report which spoke of the laborer. Now I have a corresponding quotation which is more important, and which speaks of the cottier. What was the proportion of the population which more than forty years after the Union was described by the Devon Report as being in a condition worse and more disgraceful than any population in Europe? Mr. O'Connell has estimated it in this house at five million out of seven million, and Sir James Graham, in debate with him, declined to admit that it was five million, but did admit that it was three million five hundred thousand. Well, sir, in 1815, Parliament passed an act of Irish legislation. What was the purpose of that act? The act declared that, from the state of the law in Ireland, the old intertangled usages and provisions containing effectual protection for the tenant against the landlord could not avail. These intertangled usages, which had replaced in an imperfect manner the tribal usages on which the tenure of land in Ireland was founded, Parliament swept them away, and did everything to expose the tenants to the action of the landlord but nothing to relieve or deal with, by any amendment of the law, the terrible distress which was finally disclosed by the Devon Commission. Again, what was the state of Ireland with regard to freedom? In the year 1820, the sheriff of Dublin and the gentry of that county and capital determined to have a county meeting to make compliments to George the Fourth. the trial of Queen Caroline being just over. They held their county meeting, the people went to the county meeting, and a counter-address was moved, warm in professions of loyalty, but setting out the grievances of the country and condemning the trial and proceedings against the Queen. The sheriff refused to bear it. He put his own motion, but refused to put the other motion. He left the meeting, which continued the debate, and he sent in the military to the meeting, which was broken up by force. That was the state of Ireland as to freedom of petition and remonstrance twenty years after the Union. Do you suppose that would have been the case if Ireland had retained her own Parliament? No, sir. Other cases I will not dwell upon at this late hour, simply on account of the lateness of the hour. From 1857, when we passed an act which enabled the landlords of Ireland to sell improvements on their tenants' holdings over their heads, down to 1880, when a most limited and carefully framed bill, the product of Mr. Forster's benevolence, was passed by this House and rejected by an enormous majority in the House of Lords, thereby precipitating the Land Act of 1881. It is impossible to stand by the legislation of this House as a whole since the Union. I have sometimes heard it said, you have had all kinds of remedial legislation. The two chief items are the disestablishment of the Church and the reform of the land laws. But what did you say of these? Why, you said the change in the land laws was confiscation, and the disestablishment of the church was sacrilege. You cannot at one and the same time condemn these measures as confiscation and sacrilege, and at the same time quote them as proofs of the justice with which you have acted to Ireland. I must further say that we have proposed this measure because Ireland wants to make her own laws. It is not enough to say you are prepared to make good laws. You were prepared to make good laws for the colonies. You did make good laws for the colonies, according to the best of your light. The colonists were totally dissatisfied with them. You accepted their claim to make their own laws. Ireland, in our opinion, has a claim not less urgent. Now, sir, what is before us? What is before us in the event of the rejection of this bill? What alternatives have been proposed? 
Here I must for a moment comment on the fertile imagination of my right honourable friend, the member for West Birmingham. He has proposed alternatives, and plenty of them. My right honourable friend says that a dissolution has no terrors for him. I do not wonder at it. I do not see how a dissolution can have any terrors for him. That in whichever direction the winds of heaven may blow, they must fill his sails. Let me illustrate my meaning. I will suppose different cases. Supposing at the election, I mean that an election is a thing like Christmas, it is always coming. Supposing that at an election public opinion should be very strong in favour of the bill. My right honourable friend would then be perfectly prepared to meet that public opinion, and tell it, I declared strongly that I adopted the principle of the bill. On the other hand, if public opinion was very adverse to the bill, my right honourable friend again is in complete armour, because he says, yes, I voted against the bill. Supposing again public opinion is in favour of a very large plan for Ireland, my right honourable friend is perfectly provided for that case also. The government plan was not large enough for him, and he proposed, in his speech, on the introduction of the bill, that we should have a measure on the basis of federation, which goes beyond this bill. Lastly, and now I have very nearly boxed the compass, supposing that public opinion should take quite a different turn, and instead of wanting very large measures for Ireland, should demand very small measures for Ireland, still the resources of my right honourable friend are not exhausted, because then he is able to point out that the last of his plans was four provincial councils controlled from London. Under other circumstances I should, perhaps, have been tempted to ask the secret of my right honourable friend's recipe. As it is, I am afraid I am too old to learn it. But I do not wonder that a dissolution has no terrors for him, because he is prepared in such a way, and with such a series of expedients, to meet all the possible contingencies of the case. Well, sir, when I come to look at these practical alternatives and provisions, I find that they are visibly creations of the vivid imagination, born of the hour and perishing with the hour, totally and absolutely unavailable for the solution of a great and difficult problem, the weight of which, and the urgency of which, my right honourable friend himself, in other days, has seemed to feel. But I should not say now that our plan has possession of the field without a rival. Lord Salisbury has given us a rival plan. My first remark is that Lord Salisbury's policy has not been disavowed. It is, therefore, adopted. <laughs> what is it? Another laugh? It has been disavowed. What is it? Great complaints are made because it has been called a policy of coercion, and Lord Salisbury is stated to have explained in another place that he is not favourable to coercion, but only to legislative provisions for preventing interference by one man with the liberty of another, and for ensuring the regular execution of the law. And that, you say, is not coercion? Was that your view six months ago? What did the Liberal government propose when they went out of office? They proposed to enact clauses against the— No, 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 no. They never made any proposal. Perhaps not, but it was publicly stated— it was stated to me in a letter by the right honourable gentleman. In October, certainly, but it was stated in order to correct a rather gross error of the right honourable gentleman. It was stated as what we had intended when we were going out of office. Unless I am greatly mistaken, it was publicly stated in this house long before. However, it is not very important. What were the proposals that we were about to make, or that we were supposed to be about to make? 
well a proposal about boycotting to prevent one man interfering with the liberty of another and a proposal about a change of venue to ensure the execution of the ordinary law and how were these proposals viewed did not the tories go into the election putting upon their placards vote for the tories and no coercion no no i do not say that every tory did it the honourable and gallant baronet cries no no doubt he did not do it but he had no irish voters if i had i would have done it then it means this that these proposals which we are about to make were defined as coercion by the tories at the election and lord salisbury now denies them to be coercion and it is resented with the loudest manifestations of displeasure when any one on this side of the house states that lord salisbury has recommended twenty years of coercion lord salisbury recommended as he says himself twenty years of those measures which last year were denounced by the tories but what did lord salisbury call them himself what were his own words his words were my alternative policy is that parliament should enable the government of england to govern ireland what is the meaning of those words their meaning in the first instance is this the government does not want the aid of parliament to exercise their executive power it wants the aid of parliament for fresh legislation the demand that the parliament should enable the government of england to govern ireland is a demand for fresh legislative power this fresh legislative power how are they to use apply that recipe honestly consistently and resolutely for twenty years and at the end of that time you will find ireland will be fit to accept any gift in the way of local government or repeal of coercion laws that you may wish to give and yet objections and complaints of misrepresentation teem from that side of the house when any one on this side says that lord salisbury recommended coercion when he himself applies that same term in his own words a question was put to me by my honourable friend the member for bermondsey mr thorold rogers in the course of his most instructive speech my honourable friend had a serious misgiving as to the point of time were we right in introducing this measure now he did not object to the principle he intimated a doubt as to the moment i may ask my honourable friend to consider what would have happened had we hesitated as to the duty before us had we used the constant efforts that would have been necessary to keep the late government in office and allowed them to persevere in their intentions on the twenty sixth of january they proposed what we termed a measure of coercion and i think we were justified in so terming it because anything attempting to put down a political association can hardly have another name can it be denied that that legislation must have been accompanied by legislation against the press legislation against public meetings and other legislation without which it would have been totally ineffective would it have been better if a great controversy cannot be avoided and i am sensible of the evil of this great controversy i say it is better that parties should be matched in conflict upon a question of giving a great boon to ireland rather than as we should have been if the policy of january twenty sixth had proceeded that we should have been matched and brought into conflict and the whole country torn with dispute and discussion upon the policy of a great measure of coercion that is my first reason my second reason is this let my honourable friend recollect that this is the earliest moment in our parliamentary history when we have the voice of ireland authentically expressed in our hearing majorities of home rulers there may have been upon other occasions a practical majority of irish members has never been brought together for such a purpose 
Now, first, we can understand her. Now, first, we are able to deal with her. We are able to learn authentically what she wants and wishes, what she offers and will do, and as we ourselves enter into the strongest moral and honourable obligations by the steps which we take in this house, so we have before us practically an Ireland under the representative system, able to give us equally authentic information, able morally to convey to us an assurance the breach and rupture of which would cover Ireland with disgrace. There is another reason, but not a very important one. It is this. I feel that any attempt to palter with the demands of Ireland, so conveyed in forms known to the Constitution, and any rejection of the conciliatory policy, might have an effect that none of us could wish in strengthening that party of disorder which is behind the back of the Irish representatives, which skulks in America, which skulks in Ireland, which I trust is losing ground and is losing force, and will lose ground and will lose force in proposition as our policy is carried out and which I cannot altogether dismiss from consideration, when I take into view the consequences that might follow upon its rejection. What is the case of Ireland at this moment? Have honourable gentlemen considered that they are coming into conflict with a nation? Can anything stop a nation's demand, except its being proved to be immoderate and unsafe? But here are multitudes, and I believe millions upon millions, out of doors, who feel this demand to be neither immoderate nor unsafe. In our opinion, there is but one question before us about this demand. It is as to the time and the circumstance of granting it. There is no question in our minds that it will be granted. We wish it to be granted in the mode prescribed by Mr. Burke. Mr. Burke said in his first speech at Bristol, I was true to my old standing invariable principles, that all things which came from Great Britain should issue as a gift of her bounty and beneficence, rather than as claims recovered against struggling litigants, or at least, if your beneficence obtained no credit in your concessions, yet they should appear the salutary provisions of your wisdom and foresight, not as things wrung from you with your blood by the cruel grip of a rigid necessity. The difference between giving with freedom and dignity on the one side, with acknowledgment and gratitude on the other, and giving under compulsion, giving with disgrace, giving with resentment dogging you at every step of your path, this difference is, in our eyes, fundamental, and this is the main reason, not only why we have acted, but why we have acted now. This, if I understand it, is one of the golden moments of our history, one of those opportunities which may come and may go, but which rarely return, or if they return, return at long intervals, and under circumstances which no man can forecast. There have been such golden moments even in the tragic history of Ireland, as her poet says, One time the harp of Innisfall was tuned to notes of gladness. And then he goes on to say, But yet did oftener tell a tale of more prevailing sadness. But there was such a golden moment. It was in 1795. It was on the mission of Lord Fitzwilliam. At that moment it is historically clear that the Parliament of Groton was on the point of solving the Irish problem. The two great knots of that problem were, in the first place, Roman Catholic emancipation, and in the second place, the reform of Parliament. The cup was at her lips, and she was ready to drink it, when the hand of England rudely and ruthlessly dashed it to the ground, in obedience to the wild and dangerous intimations of an Irish faction. Ex illo flure, ac retro sub lapsa referi, spes danum. 
From then onwards the tide of fortune left the shores of Troy, and ebbed faster than it flowed earlier. There has been no great day of hope for Ireland, no day when you might hope completely and definitely to end the controversy till now, more than ninety years. The long, periodic time has at last run out, and the star has again mounted into the heavens. What Ireland was doing for herself in 1795 we at length have done. The Roman Catholics have been emancipated, emancipated after a woeful disregard of solemn promises through twenty-nine years, emancipated slowly, sullenly, not from goodwill, but from abject terror, with all the fruits and consequences which will always follow that method of legislation. The second problem has been also solved, and the representative of Ireland has been thoroughly reformed, and I am thankful to say that the franchise was given to Ireland on the readjustment of last year, with a free heart, with an open hand, and the gift of that franchise was the last act required to make the success of Ireland in her final effort absolutely sure. We have given Ireland a voice. We must listen for a moment to what she says. We must all listen, both sides, both parties, I mean, as they are, divided on this question, divided, I am afraid, by an almost immeasurable gap. We do not undervalue or despise the forces opposed to us. I have described them as the forces of class and its dependence, and that as a general description, as a slight and rude outline of a description, is, I believe, perfectly true. I do not deny that many are against us whom we should have expected to be before us. I do not deny that some whom we see against us have caused us by their conscientious action the bitterest disappointment. You have power, you have wealth, you have rank, you have station, you have organization. What have we? We think that we have the people's heart. We believe, and we know we have the promise of the harvest of the future. As to the people's heart, you may dispute it, and dispute it with perfect sincerity. Let that matter make its own proof. As to the harvest of the future, I doubt if you have so much confidence, and I believe that there is in the breast of many a man who means to vote against us to-night a profound misgiving, approaching even to a deep conviction, that the end will be as we foresee, and not as you do, that the ebbing tide is with you, and the flowing tide is with us. Ireland stands at your bar, expectant, hopeful, almost suppliant. Her words are the words of truth and soberness. She asks a blessed oblivion of the past, and in that oblivion our interest is deeper than even hers. My right honourable friend, the member for East Edinburgh, Mr. Goshen, asks us to-night to abide by the traditions of which we are the heirs. What traditions? By the Irish traditions? Go into the length and breadth of the world, ransack the literature of all countries, find, if you can, a single voice, a single book, find, I would almost say, as much as a single newspaper article, unless the product of the day, in which the conduct of England towards Ireland is anywhere treated except with profound and bitter condemnation. Are these the traditions by which we are exhorted to stand? No, they are a sad exception to the glory of our country. They are a broad and black blot upon the pages of its history, and what we want to do is to stand by the traditions of which we are the heirs in all matters, except our relations with Ireland, and to make our relations with Ireland to conform to the other traditions of our country. So we treat our traditions— so we hail the demand of Ireland for what I call a blessed oblivion of the past. She asks also a boon for the future, 
and that boon for the future, unless we are much mistaken, will be a boon to us in respect of honour, no less than a boon to her in respect of happiness, prosperity, and peace. Such, sir, is her prayer. Think, I beseech you, think well, think wisely, think not for the moment, but for the years that are to come, before you reject this bill. End of speech.